When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. First Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is Kevin Smith, your host, and this is episode number 13 of our show. And I I note that only because it is it is also July 13th as this airs, and I don't know, uh, those among you, I don't know if you're superstitious, if you have any superstitions in your life, I don't, I really, I don't seem to have any issues that really plague me in one way or another as far as those things go. My grandmother had this weird thing where she would only enter a building or exit a building out the same door in which she came in. That was her big, her big thing. Wherever we went, we had to go out the same door that we entered in. And uh, (laughs) I don't know why that was, but it didn't get handed down to me. So 13 doesn't affect me in in any way, shape or form. uh, Other than to say that at this point now on the call sheet, we've uh, we're far enough in for me to sort of get a feel for, for what we're doing here, get a little rhythm going and get an idea of what people like and don't like. And, and so we're kind of trying to boil the show into a bit of a formula here or something that I think works. And, and so what we're going to do now is in the first half of the show, we're going to do a little bit of a whip around. It seems as though people kind of like it when we, when we whip through the league and, and touch on some of the, the pressing issues uh, or things that are relevant to the current moment. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to do uh, our call sheet segment, which is to really focus on an aspect of the game, try to take some of my 28 years of coaching experience and impart just a little bit about how the game works. And today we will focus on how offenses are really changing the landscape of the NFL by forcing defenses to defend the entire field, specifically by incorporating the horizontal stretch concepts into, into their systems. So that's part two. But in part one, let's dive in in part one here. And what we're going to do in part one is we're going to do an NFC preview. I'm going to I'm going to preview the NFC in part one of the show this week. I'm going to preview the AFC in part one of the show next week. Uh, the NFC. So let's let's jump in right there, man. It's really interesting. It's uh, it appears to be a two team conference. And. It's mid-July and everybody's optimistic at this this time of year. And I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade, but it sure seems in the NFC as though there are two Goliaths, the Philadelphia Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers, and that the conference is on a crash course towards a rematch in the NFC championship game between those two teams. 
And that would be something. That really would be something because while the Eagles and Niners are not traditional rivals, they're they're located on opposite coasts. The two cities, Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is the city that I live closest to. I'm about an hour from Philly. Spent a lot of time there. Got a pretty good vibe for that city. Uh, I've also been to San Francisco several times. Those are two very opposite cities. So not only is their geography far apart, but so too is their culture, their feel, the heart and soul of the people there. And you think about the fact that the Eagles and 49ers, they're not really traditional rivals. As a, as a matter of fact, over the past 12 years, they've only played five times. And the Eagles hold a three to two advantage in those five games. And that includes last year's 31-7 drubbing of the Niners in the NFC Championship game. And fans may remember that in that game, San Francisco lost both starting quarterback Brock Purdy and backup Josh Johnson. And at for a large, long stretch in that game, they had to have star running back Christian McCaffrey taking snaps and essentially running some wildcat. And then Purdy came back in late. And it became clear right away he couldn't throw the ball and all he could do was hand it off. I mean, they were essentially rendered impotent on offense. And in the offseason, the NFL changed the rule. Uh, what I always thought was a silly rule about you could only have two active game day quarterbacks. I never understood the logic of that rule. I mean, I can have as many wide receivers as I want, but I can only have two quarterbacks. It didn't seem to make any sense. And they can now address a third emergency quarterback. And they changed that rule in large part because it was probably embarrassing for the league to have a conference championship game where one team was essentially playing with one hand tied behind its back. And that fact did not go unnoticed by San Francisco's players. And they've made a lot of noise throughout the offseason about how they did not feel as though they were competing on a level playing field with the Eagles because of the quarterback situation. Receiver Brandon Ayuk said that, that the Eagles got extremely lucky with the injuries. And then Debo Samuel asserted that there was, quote, no question the 49ers are a better football team than Philly. And of course, Philadelphia, they don't like to take those things lying down. The beat writers and the, and the local bloggers, they responded in kind. I read an article just this week titled Crybaby 49ers Still Whining About Losing NFC Championship Game. So there's not a lot of history between the Eagles and the 49ers, but it feels like maybe there's a bit of a storm brewing, right? And, and that storm is accentuated by the fact that these two teams remain the cream of the NFC crop. I mean, Philly lost some key free agent uh, free agents this offseason, especially on defense. They lost Javon Hargrave and C.J. Gardner-Johnson, T.J. Edwards. But they they made some smart signings, too. They kept the corners together. Their corners were all free agents, James Bradbury and Darius Slay. They kept them together, and they added Greedy Williams to that mix. And then they re-signed their veteran leaders, Jason Kelsey and Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham. And then they quietly picked up a really versatile safety from the Steelers, Terrell Edmonds, who I think is a better player than he often gets credit for and can do a lot of things in a defense. And on the, in the draft, they loaded up on some more Georgia Bulldogs. They've got five Georgia standouts out of the last two drafts on defense. And so they're going to be right there on defense. And on the offensive side of the ball, other than swapping running back Miles Sanders for free agent Rashad Penny, they got the whole group back, man. They've got uh, – they, they retain the most uh, dynamic playmaking unit in the league. They led the NFL with 151 explosive plays last year, and they were second – in points per game to the Chiefs. So Philly 
is going to be right there again. And San Francisco too. Now the Niners may, may have a little bit more of a pressing issue to deal with because of their quarterback situation. They lost uh, Brock Purdy to that injury and he's still recovering from the surgery and Trey Lance who everybody last year thought would wind up being the starter. He's recovering from injury as well. So those guys are going to take a little bit of time to come back. It's uncertain whether Purdy will be able to make the opener or not. And they lost some free agent talent, Mike McGlinchey and Emmanuel Mosley and Jimmy Ward. Uh, But they signed Hargrave from the Eagles, which bolsters an already ridiculously good defensive front. And on offense, they're just loaded, absolutely loaded at the skill position groups. So, it's going to be a little bit difficult for uh, the, you know, the, the 49ers as they get their feet underneath them. But the early slate of the schedule is not real challenging. Uh, the early slate of the schedule gives, the, gives them the first four games, only one opponent made the playoffs. And so it, it just feels, it just feels like we're headed for an Eagles 49ers rematch in the championship game. Now, first, they play each other December 3rd in Philadelphia, and that'll be... Uh, must-see TV in the regular season. But if I were a betting man, I'd probably put my money on a championship rematch in, in late January. But what about everybody else, right? Who's who's most likely to play David to the Goliath of the Eagles and 49ers in the NFC? And I think Dallas seems like the best bet right now, at least on paper. I mean, on paper, the Cowboys are really good. They've got a top five offense coming back from last year. They added Brandon Cooks to that mix. Uh, Stephon Gilmore, they added to the defense. And if, if he's got enough left in the tank, the Cowboys could be lights out on defense. And so, so on paper, they look like an elite team. But I keep saying on paper because recent history just tells us that the Cowboys are not there in the postseason. They've They're perennial disappointments, it seems like. They've only won four playoff games this century, and none of them beyond the wildcard round. So, I mean, you have to go back to the glory days of of Irvin and Aikman and Smith and Jimmy Johnson and those guys and to revisit the last time that the Cowboys were serious players in the postseason. So, while they look great on paper, it's really kind of prove it before you can get too excited about the Cowboys. And then you have Minnesota who went 13 and four last year, and they'd seem to be in this conversation, but they, they appear to be in a bit of a soft rebuild. Uh, they, they've released Dalvin cook. and It'll be interesting to see how the offense goes without him. The defense last year was one of the worst in the league. There hasn't been a ton of improvement there. Uh, they recognize that they're going to have to extend Je- Justin Jefferson soon. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to see how the Vikings have played this off season. Now, one addition that I think will pay huge dividends for them is Brian Flores, the new defensive coordinator, who I have a ton of respect for and think is one of the best in the business. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of an impact he makes. But it just doesn't feel like Minnesota is quite there with San Fran, Philly, and the Cowboys. A team from their division, of course, that's gotten a lot of buzz are the Detroit Lions. They're the new darling of the NFC, and that buzz is justified. I mean, they have a top 10 offense and they've got a young and improving defense. And, and Dan Campbell, uh, the head coach seems to have done something in Detroit that nobody's been able to do for over a generation. And that is to instill a culture there. It feels like there's a culture in Detroit and a healthy one. And so they're certainly a team on the rise. No question about that, but they have not won a playoff game since 1991 
And unless you get the number one seed, which seems unlikely for Detroit, you got to win three of them just to get to the Super Bowl. So it feels like Detroit's not yet there, although I do believe they'll end their playoff drought and qualify. They haven't made the playoffs since 2016. And I think the last team in the conversation of true contenders in the NFC, or at least teams that could challenge the top two, are the Seattle Seahawks. And they're quietly a really solid football team. The defense is always solid, if not spectacular. They have an excellent ground game. They have one of the league's best receiving cores. Pete Carroll always has that team prepared. And if Geno Smith can show that he's more than a one-hit wonder in terms of his comeback, then they're going to be a tough out for anybody in the playoffs. All right, what about everybody else, the rest of the conference? Well, quickly, the Giants made the playoffs last year, uh, but it just seems to be unsettled in New York right now. Saquon Barkley's not happy. The receiving core is a bit thin. Daniel Jones signed this massive four-year, $160 million contract. He doesn't live up to it early. Uh, you know, the fans may get a little restless. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens in New York. I'm just not convinced uh, that they're going to be as good this year as they were last year. A team that could sneak into the playoffs in their same division, the Washington Commanders, they were a respectable 8-8-1. Eight, eight, and one. Uh, the big challenge there is to see whomever among Sam Howell and Jacoby Brissett wins that starting quarterback battle. How quickly are they going to be able to pick up new head coach Eric Bieniemy's system? If they can, Washington's got a lights out defense, so they could be a team that sneaks into the playoffs. And so could the Green Bay Packers if you move to the north, right? The Packers parted ways with Aaron Rodgers. And they're going to start the Jordan Love era, but you're, they're going to start it exactly as you'd like for a young quarterback. He's got a solid offensive line. He's got a strong running game. Uh, the schedule's relatively soft. If they can figure out how to stop the run, Detroit was 26th against the run last year, then they could be a wild card contender too. The other team in the North, the Chicago Bears, I mean, they're not a playoff team, but they made a ton of moves this offseason. And I certainly looked for them to improve on their 3 and 14 mark from last year. If you go to the NFC South, that's a really interesting division. I think only Tampa Bay, which is in a full rebuild right now, it feels like anyway, uh, only Tampa Bay appears to be out of it as far as being able to win the, the, the division is concerned. You've got Carolina, New Orleans, and Atlanta, all very competitive with one another. Carolina might be the best overall team in that division. And New Orleans, in bringing in Derek Carr, they've got the best quarterback. But Atlanta's kind of my sleeper pick to win the NFC South because I love how they're building a Tennessee-style offense around their head coach, who is the former Titans coordinator, Arthur Smith. I just think there's going to be a lot of close games in that division. And if you can run the ball uh, and, and dominate time of possession, you can win those games. I think Atlanta's built to win those division games and, and, win, the, and win the division, but not built really to make a deep playoff run. So that brings me to the last two teams in the conference, the Rams, who who won the Super Bowl two years ago, if if you remember. And it's easy to forget about that because they've seemed to have disappeared. And, you know, they're they're shedding salary and uh, they may be setting themselves up to finish poorly and win the right to draft Matthew Stafford's successor. Uh, I think Sean McVay's got enough enough stability in LA to, to withstand another poor season five and 12 last year. They may be worse than that this year. Uh, but I think they'll give McVay a chance to rebuild 
in either a post Stafford world or with a, a new supporting cast. So, so definite vibe of a rebuild in LA and now the Cardinals, finally, the Arizona Cardinals, my goodness, they uh, are probably the worst team in the NFL. I, with apologies to my sister, who's a Tempe resident and a, and a Cardinals nut loves the Cardinals sends my son Cardinals gear all the time. It's just going to be a rough year there. I mean, they, they've got one of the worst defenses in the league and, and now Kyler Murray, maybe their most talented player, is going to be on the shelf for a little while as he continues to rehab his his knee, which he his season ended last December after an ACL injury. And you're going to get some somebody out of Colt McCoy, Jeff Driscoll, and David Blau to win that starting quarterback job. And without a great ground game or supporting cast on defense, that's going to be a tough ask. Arizona is going to be in for a long year. New head coach, Jonathan Gannon, you got to hope he's got a long leash or he's not going to survive it there in the desert. Okay, so that's my NFC preview. Eagles and Niners, class of the conference. Got some contenders behind them who could shock some people with a, with a, uh, a deep postseason run, play a little David to those Goliaths, but I'm not banking on it. I'm betting that we're going to see a Philly-San Francisco rematch in the championship game in – January. So, all right, going to take a little break. And on the other side, going to going to flip the subject and get more into the coaching part of the show. And we're going to talk about how modern offenses are changing the game with their horizontal attacks and what that all means. So stick around after the break. Hey, welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. In the first part of the show, we were talking about the NFC, doing a little NFC preview. And in the second part of the show, our call sheet segment, the segment where I like to take some of my coaching experience and try to impart a little bit of what I've learned from the game and and talk about some of the the schemes, the concepts, uh, the, the manner in which the NFL works, football in general works and focus on a, on a certain topic. And we're going to do that right now. And what we're going to focus on is how offenses have changed in the last five, six years in order to create a difficult situation for defenses by implementing more horizontal schemes into their systems. And by that, we essentially are saying, how are offenses doing a better job of stretching the field, making defenses defend the entire field and, and then gashing those defenses or, or taking advantage of those defenses once they overextend themselves. So to begin with that thought, I'm going to go back to the 1980s and 1990s when, when I was playing football. Many of you were probably playing football. Uh, and, we, and you think about the manner in which offenses operated at that time. Just about every offense was operating out of what's called 21 personnel. So two backs, which was traditionally a tailback and a fullback, and one tight end and two wide receivers. Many teams would then implement a second tight end, 12 personnel, or 20, 22 personnel, which is two tight ends and two running backs. And the reason they operated this way was because the philosophy of the game was fairly simple. You, you played downhill football. You, you ran power concepts, gap concepts. You ran... The ball down the opponent's throat really is is 
uh, it was the traditional goal. I mean, I had several football coaches. I'm quoting several coaches of mine growing up who were essentially would say, hey, you know, we can tell the defense the play, but if you're tougher than they are, they can't stop you. And that was just a, an old school mentality, right? I mean, football was designed to move people off the line of scrimmage, and that's how it was played. I mean, I, I played safety in college in the early 1990s, and I was never too high, never. I was never a too high safety because you couldn't play too high against the offenses of the day. So, so in order to get an extra defender in the box, the safety, strong safety, that was me, dropped down, and I played in the box all the time, more like a linebacker than a safety. But offense has reached a point really in the late 90s, early 2000s, where that style of play just didn't work for certain teams anymore. And one of those teams was the University of Kentucky, which was then coached by Hal Mummy, one of the great innovators of modern offense. And Hal Mummy basically looked at his team and then he looked at his opponents. He looked at the SEC schedule and he saw Alabama and LSU and Georgia and Auburn and Florida. And he said, I can't play power football against those teams. Their dudes are just better than my dudes. And what Hal Mummy did was pretty radical. He took the tight end and the fullback off the field and he replaced them with two wide receivers, what's now referred to as 10 personnel. And Hal Mummy had one running back and no tight ends and four wide receivers on the field. And they started to throw the ball all over the place. They came up with a, a new passing system, which is now commonly known as the air raid. And that system was based on spacing, on simplifying the, the, the concepts that were being run, but running them for very specific purposes in order to create mismatches or target the weaknesses in various coverages. And it was incredibly successful. And one of the reasons it was successful was because defenses were just slow to respond. Defenses for a long time just countered by keeping their base personnel on the field. So if you were a 4-3 defense, that meant that when you kept three linebackers on the field, one of those linebackers was going to have to walk out and cover a really quick slot receiver. Uh, picture like Wes Welker at Texas Tech in the early 2000s, right? And now you got a linebacker trying to cover Wes Welker. And it didn't go well for defenses. And eventually, eventually defenses responded with the, the dawn of sub packages and nickel packages and those things. And that's actually a subject we're going to get into next week, how defenses have responded to all this. But it was all the craze on the college level in the early 2000s and the high school level as well. And suddenly everybody was running the spread, especially those teams that felt as though they had some inferior personnel when compared to their opponents, because it gave them an advantage, a, a tactical advantage. But it was slow to make its way to the NFL. All right, why is that? Why, why were NFL teams reluctant to start installing 10 personnel spread schemes? One of the big reasons is because the NFL greatly values protecting its quarterbacks. And when you got into a 10 personnel spread scheme, that meant that you only had five players to protect up front and NFL defensive linemen were just too good. Uh, and NFL linebackers too fast to have a steady diet of five man pass protections. So 
NFL coaches said, this will never work because you're going to get my quarterback killed. Plus, in a lot of those spread schemes, offenses relied on the quarterback to be a runner. You're limited in the run schemes that you can create with just five in-line blockers, five guys up front. It's inside zone. And if you want to pull your guard and tackle, what's often referred to as GT counter, uh, or maybe some some one-back power. But in many of those schemes, in order to get that sixth blocker that you often need to, to nullify the sixth defender in the box, the quarterback has to run. And NFL coaches were just very, very hesitant to start running their quarterbacks. These are, again, guys that the entire franchise has been built around, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to put that guy in jeopardy, put him in harm's way by having him run the football. But slowly, the spread mentality began to trickle up to the NFL level. And it really probably first arrived in San Francisco when Greg Roman was coordinating the offense and Colin Kaepernick was running uh, the show there. And the Niners became one of the first teams to invest heavily in read option concepts and horizontal throws, bubble screens, perimeter screens, the jet sweep concept. We'll talk about all those things in a minute. And San Francisco did it, though, their, their own way. They, they didn't do it out of 10 personnel. They did it with H-backs and tight ends and bigger players. But by the time we, we got to the 49ers, which, you know, we're talking around 2014 now, things had changed in, in other ways. Speed was becoming more and more important on the field. And one position that had really undergone an evolution was the tight end position. We think back to the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, tight ends tended to be big and lumbering. They, they would block down. Maybe they could, they, they could run a, a bench route or some sort of shallow cross off some play action, but they weren't field stretchers. But by the time you got to the 20 teens, teams were investing in what are now called move tight ends. And move tight ends were those really athletic tight ends who you could move about the formation and they could get down the field. Think Jason Kelsey, George Kittle, those guys. Think those types of tight ends today who are all over the league. They could also block. And that's what really made the difference that you could now run schemes where you had your six inline blockers. You could run your, your zone schemes, your gap schemes. Most importantly, you could run outside zone, which we'll get to in a second because you had a sixth, inline blocker, but you could also spread the field because some of those tight ends were versatile enough to detach from the line of scrimmage and go put them in the slot where they still could create an advantage with their size and quickness against outside linebackers or defensive backs. And that was really a game changer. When the move tight end came in, the athletic tight end, who are again, all over the league right now, offenses became more willing to adopt the college mindset and say, Hey, Let's stretch the field. Let's stretch the field and then try to exploit defenses once they expand uh, in order to sort of gash them. And it's such, a, it's such a far cry from the mentality of the 80s and 90s when, when many of you out, out here listening were, were probably playing football when I was playing football. So that game was played in a box, man. I mean, tight formations, power runs, the grass was always chewed up. It, it, it's always funny to look back on films from back then. The grass in between the hashes is totally chewed up. 
in all of those fields. In some in some fields, you know, it's just dirt in the middle of the field. But outside the numbers, it's pristine. You know why? Because nobody played outside the numbers. Nobody pushed the ball outside the numbers. And what started happening in the 20 teens is offenses began to now do so. And the, the advantages that they found were remarkable. And it ushered in an offensive revolution that defenses are still sort of responding to. So let's ask this question, right? How have NFL offenses done this? How have NFL offenses adopted some of these college schemes and made defenses defend the entire 53 and a half yards of the width of the field? So one way that they've done it, we just mentioned with the move tight end, the athletic tight end who now can run sideline to sideline, can run vertical. But another way is by going heavy on the stretch play the stretch play is not it's not a new run play it, it dates back to the 1980s and 1990s Alex Gibbs the the wonderful offensive line coach uh, who was probably most famous for his work in Denver and with the Washington Redskins uh, Terrell Davis if you remember Terrell Davis the star running back for the Broncos when they won back-to-back Super Bowls in the late 90s thrived on the outside zone run play and an outside zone is really effective because like it's companion inside zone is a full flow run play but inside zone which hits in the a and b gaps the a gap between the center and guard the b gap between the guard and tackle inside zone is designed to hit somewhere between the play side a gap and backside b gap and it features linemen all stepping in the same direction all blocking in the same direction but they're trying to sort of create a vertical push Outside zone changes the aiming point. They take the same first step. Inside zone and outside zone conceptually look the same because everybody's still reaching in the same direction. But the aiming point changes. Now, rather than trying to push defenders vertically, blockers are trying to reach them horizontally. They're trying to get to their outside shoulder. And and the natural reaction of a defender to that type of a blocking scheme is going to be to work laterally because you're trying to protect your outside shoulder. You don't want to get reached and let the back get to the edge. So you start to work laterally. And inevitably what that does is it creates seams in a defense. So outside zone ideally hits in the C gap between the tackle and tight end, but it can hit outside the tight end. It can go as far wide as the sideline, depending upon how it, how the blocking unfolds. But outside zone has been a wonderful way of stressing defenses getting linebackers in particular running because if you're a linebacker right and you see that full flow from the offensive line and that wide angle by the back you got to get on your horse especially if you're the backside backer because you know if that play cuts up in the c gap that's your responsibility you got to get from the backside b gap over the top of all that clutter into the play side c gap to make that tackle you better get moving so of course what do offenses now do they have somebody up in the sky, somebody in the box whose eyes are on those those linebackers, right? I'm, I'm somebody on the offensive staff. Maybe I'm the tight ends coach. I don't know. And my job is to watch the linebackers every time we run stretch, every time we run outside zone. And if I can tell the offensive coordinator, hey, that backside backer is flying out of there, then here comes a constraint play, right? Now here comes counter off the outside zone or the play that the, that the 49ers have, have run so effectively for the last decade. Here comes naked boot or play action off of that, where you're now pulling the ball that you're faking to the running back and booting back in the opposite direction. And you're taking the tight end and you're running them all the way across the field. And now that backside backer who's vacated his area, 
he's not there and you got a nice big window to throw to the tight end. So outside zone, which uh, is a huge play at the college level, has become a huge play again in the NFL. So has jet sweep. There's another concept that, that we didn't we didn't see jet sweep in the NFL for years after it became very popular at the college level. But now every team in the NFL has got jet sweep in its playbook. If you think about jet sweep, it's another way to get to the perimeter, even faster than outside zone. And jet sweeps designed as a true sweep play. It's supposed to get to the edge. And so if you're not, if you can't picture it in your head, you've seen it before. Jet sweep is where you have a wide receiver who comes in motion, fast motion. He's going as fast as he can. It could be a slot. It could be a, a flanker. Uh, who's off the ball to the side of the tight end. And he's coming as fast as he can. And the quarterback is either going to, well, the quarterback, first of all, is going to snap the ball before he gets to the place, the, the backside tackle, before he before he he crosses the center for sure. Ideally, you want to snap it when he gets to the near tackle. And that quarterback's either going to hand him the ball on a true full, full flow sweep play where he's got lead blockers and everybody out in front, or the quarterback's going to read an unblocked defender and then pull the ball and run the ball himself. And so what makes jet sweep so effective is the fact that that receiver, who's probably like a four, three guy in the NFL is moving at full speed. Once he touches the football and he's on a, on, on a, a hard course to the edge. And if the defense just sits in its, in its base and doesn't adjust to that motion, they're not going to get there. So lots of times what you see is now the defense will have to move. They'll have to change their structure. And if there's one thing that a defense coordinator hates, it's the defense having to change its structure pre-snap. So defenses line up a certain way for particular reasons, right? If, you, if you're a 4-3 defense, the most important thing that you must have is gap integrity against the run game. You, you got to make sure every gap, if a team lines up in a traditional single tight end set, there's seven gaps. And you got to have all seven gaps filled. But when teams start running jet sweep and you recognize that you have to move your guys to be able to defend the perimeter run, it compromises the integrity of those run fits. One of those gaps might get compromised. Or if you bring a safety down, let's say you're a too high team and here comes the jet sweep and you want to roll your safeties, you're now, you're now giving up a potential advantage to the offense with the rotation of your defensive backs. And offenses, again, are going to look for that, right? What is the adjustment of the defense? If I'm running jet sweep, I'm making you defend the perimeter and you're rotating your safeties. Well, what that probably means is now the backside corner, the corner covering the receiver to the side that the jet man left, he's now on an island one-on-one. -on -one. And so good offenses will build in concepts that will take advantage of that. Uh, an inside slant RPO or, or what we call what's called a glance concept, which is a skinny post that runs into the area that the rotating safety has vacated. Or maybe if you're a defense and you're trying and you're aware of that, and the jet man goes and you're the DC and you say to the, to the singled up corner, Hey, when the jet man goes and we rotate our safeties, you, you change your alignment so that you're kicked inside and you're taking away that slant. Well, offenses are smart, man. Now they're going to start running speed outs. Now they're going to start running sluggo, which is slant and go, try and get you to bite on that slant and run by you. So it's a really, it's a really stressful play, the jet sweep for a defense because of the speed at which the perimeter is being threatened. And then speaking of the perimeter, offenses now are quick to throw perimeter screens. If you don't cover down 
on those wide receivers who are in those wide formations, those formations that stretch the field, then offenses will simply throw perimeter screens pre-snap. Most teams have an alert or what they call a now screen, which is just a the, the, the slot receiver running a bubble. And if the safety or the outside linebacker doesn't walk down or doesn't kick out far enough, they'll, they'll throw that and they'll throw it right now, regardless of what the run play might be. Maybe they got an inside zone run called with a now screen attached on the perimeter and nobody walks out tightly on number two, the slot receiver. So the offensive line blocks inside zone, the running back runs inside zone, but rather than hand the ball off, the quarterback just pulls it and whips it out on the perimeter. And now you can make four or five yards that way. And then, of course, that lends itself to other constraint plays. Like if you open up the box by spreading all of your defense out, now teams can run the ball inside. Or if you get, or if your corner sees the bubble and is a little bit too aggressive against it, he now opens himself up to bubble and go. So by forcing defenses to, to uh, defend the entire width of the field, offenses now have created space for themselves. And they've created options based upon the way in which defenses try to counter these spread sets and these perimeter plays. And it's been a bit of an offensive revolution. So the next thing to talk about is, well, what are defenses doing about it? And that'll be next week's topic. So this week we previewed the NFC East, or I'm sorry, the NFC in general. And we talked about horizontal schemes by the offenses. Next week, we'll preview the AFC and we'll look at how defenses are countering these horizontal schemes, man. So hopefully we're giving you some stuff here that when you start watching real football uh, you know, a month or so from now, right, preseason games and then, and then the regular season in September, hey, maybe you'll recognize some of this stuff. Maybe you'll be like, ah, I heard that on the call sheet, man. That's a perimeter. That's a now screen. They just ran a now screen because, because the outside linebacker didn't walk out to cover the slot receiver. So they threw the now screen right there. Oh, that's what they're doing. And then you can say to yourself, huh, what's the defense going to do? Are they going to like drop a safety down? Are they going to expose themselves to, to a deep post, right? Are they just going to put a new personnel package on the field with more speed so they can run those things down? What's the defense going to do? It's a fascinating chess match. All right, we'll talk about more of that next week. Hope everybody's enjoying their July. It's hot out there, man. So jump in the lake, jump in the pool. I was in the ocean today. It was beautiful. Find yourself some shade and some water and enjoy yourselves, right? Everybody be well. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.